0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For listeners... For XM subscribers, I'm your host, Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Wharton Leadership Program. My co hosts, Mike Yuseem and Jeff Klein, are off tonight. So, listeners, jot down the phone number 1 Wharton, 1 942 Please join me as I have a conversation with our next guest. And he is John Zogby, founder and senior partner of John Zogby Strategies. You've probably heard John's name before, at least the name of his poll. Let me tell you a little bit more about him once I've invited John onto the show. John, welcome.
1: Hi, Anne. How
0: are you? I'm fine. And it's really an honor and a pleasure to have you on air tonight. Let me just give a little bit about you. And then I really am looking forward to our conversation about your firm and also about your book. You've polled and consulted for a wide spectrum of businesses, media, government, political groups including Coca-Cola, Microsoft, Cisco Systems, St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, and the U.S. Census Bureau. Your firm, John Zogby Strategies, is a partnership with your sons, Benjamin and Jeremy, and you specialize in preparing companies and agencies for the coming wave of dynamic changes. Your most recent book is We Are Many, We Are One Neo Tribes and Tribal Analytics in the 21st Century. So, John, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show tonight. Thank you. Thank you.
1: My pleasure to be here.
0: So, I might um, just for fun ask you a little bit about what drew you to polling. That's a good one.
1: Uh, and I'll tell you that I started John Zogby Associates in 1984. I'd been both a a history teacher and a political activist, drove me at the age of 32 to run for mayor of my hometown, uh, Utica, uh, New York. And at that point, uh, no one was doing local polling, and so localized polling. And so I got together with some students and former students, and we polled uh, my own mayoral race um, to two items of good news. One is that I lost, um, which is great, um, and the the second is that uh, I knew exactly how much I was going to lose by and determined, hey, this is kind of interesting. I'd rather be right than president, uh, <laughs> as someone once said. And so just a few years later, after uh, working for about three years as a community organizer and traveling the country, making a lot of contacts, uh, I started a wide-ranging consulting firm, and one of our specialties was doing polling, uh, where no one else was doing it. You know, the Wilkes Barre's and the Springfield, Massachusetts, and the Watertown, right. New York's.
0: Oh, that's great! So I'm all right. I'm I'm all in already. So when <laughs> you did the polling of your own election, which I really love, that is great. Um, was your poll, were you using the standard polling methods at the time, or were you just out there, kind of like an activist, asking people, how did you go about doing that polling at the time? Well, I,
1: I, I certainly went to the public library, remember those? Yes. And I uh, got out every book about polling, especially the ones that uh, began with how to do Mm-hmm. Um, uh, polling, and essentially use the standard methodology, but, you know, a city at that time of 80,000, 90,000 people, we didn't say any, see any need to do what was known in the business as random digit dialing. Right. And so take yourself back to 1981, our randomization was to take out the telephone book. Remember, that there was a time when <laughs> uh, so many numbers were listed, and take out your index finger, and um, and then start with uh, C or K in the alphabet and start counting every forty eighth name. Wow. Um, that's how you randomized. And then we called. But and these were the days when two out of three people that you reached on the phone said, "Oh yeah, I'm happy to take a poll. Thanks for calling me." Wow, uh, that was a very long time ago.
0: Oh my goodness. And and how close were you to judging that race?
1: Very close. Um, Incumbent Democratic primary, incumbent mayor who was who was a Democrat. Forty-five percent of the vote, thirty-seven percent for a main challenger. These were two long-time names in the community, and the left-wing guy with the big fro, a mustache, and the bell bottoms. (laughs) um, That was me. I got sixteen percent. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, it, I wasn't wearing bell bottoms. So <laughs> no,
0: but I, I really like the image. It's great. And it makes <laughs> it makes the point. Um, all right. So then, then you went to community organizing, activism. Tell us a little yes. bit about that.
1: I had always been in my adult life um, uh, a community organizer from the time I came back home after college and, and graduate school to teach. Um, but uh, professionally... Uh, in, in 1980, uh, the former U.S. Senator James Aberysk started uh, uh, the Arab-American Anti-Discrimination Committee. My brother uh, was the executive director, and I joined on. I left teaching, hmm. and uh, right after the mayoral race, actually, I left teaching and was hired to be the national field representative, which meant I had to... Uh, build the chapters, organize new chapters, keep the chapters humming, um, you know, like the Chinese plate spinner. you know <laughs> you just keep spinning them, then go back, you know, make sure this keeps spinning and so i uh in three and a half years um, there were thirty one states and over hundred cities. Um, when I think oh. about how breathtaking that was, we had three little ones at home wow. and dad was uh, dad was on the road a lot.
0: Oh boy! So now, um, how I'm—I'm I'm presuming, but tell me if I'm wrong—that your experience as an organizer had some impact on your consulting business.
1: Oh, it had—it uh, uh, had an enormous impact because, you know, teaching history gives you uh, perspective and yes. context and great skills. You know soft interviewing and soft um, evidence and that uh, that sort of stuff um, but community organizing you're you're putting people together, you're building teams mm-hmm. um, you're setting goals you're working with people to meet those goals, coming back and mm-hmm. making sure that you can check off some of the goals that are successful that allowed me then. When I started John Zogby Associates, we were doing, frankly, whatever we could do to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were doing retail, uh, radio and television advertising for clients and grand openings and strategic plans and those sorts of things. But I had been accustomed to working directly with people and, and, and putting them together.
0: Oh, that's great! And so, how many people were in your in your firm in the early days? <laughs>
1: John Zogby Associates. Uh, we, we what we did was we took the Washington D.C. model and brought it to Utica, New York. There were no associates. Oh, um, that's
2: great. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs>
1: but there were, you know, whenever yeah. we got clients. Yes, uh, I had a network of of people, some of mm-hmm. whom were specialists, and and had some time and were willing to you know to, to work with me and and so uh, boy there was all there was almost nothing we couldn't do yeah. we we have the famed Erie <laughs> Canal that comes through Utica the and the barge canal yes. successor and I used to tell people, uh, we'll, "We'll do everything except uh, dredge the canal, but <laughs> my boots are in the trunk just in case." <laughs>
0: That's uh, great. All right. Well, now just for fun, what might uh, give give us one of the more offbeat assignments you found yourself doing as part of John Zogby Associates?
1: Well, uh, you know, there were there are a couple of things. One was the feasibility of a bagel shop <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> okay. uh,
1: on a certain road. We, uh, we actually advised uh, uh, the the uh, entrepreneurs that want to start that to not do it, and mm-hmm. they didn't. But someone else started that bagel shop and hit a home run with it, and now it's franchised Uh-oh. all over the place in that same location. So that was one of the offbeat, but uh, let's say more successful uh, <laughs> jobs that we did. And then there were, you know, the various and sundry candidates that
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, came to us uh, looking to run for office. Um, uh, one in particular uh, that, that I was interviewing, and I asked him to give me a resume, and he did. He was uh, wanted to run for sheriff, and I said, well, there's a a five-year gap here uh, where you don't have anything. He said, I'd rather not talk about those five years. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Right. So, uh, how are those for offbeat? <laughs> <laughs> Very good.
0: Very good. And so, um, how long were you, uh, I'm assuming, am I right, that you then morphed into John Zugby's strategies, or is that too quick a jump? Too quick a jump. Okay, what um, happened?
1: <laughs> so, what happened is that by 1987, 88, um, don't worry, folks. I'm not going to take you year by year <laughs> here. Okay, but, uh, we, we morphed into the John Zogby Group International because we started taking on uh, clients, uh, you know, a couple here and there that were overseas. We wanted to rebrand, and uh, and, and we did. Uh, by that point, we were doing almost exclusively polling work. Oh. Um, and then by 91, we we would have, you know, by 87, 88, there were a, about 12, 14 people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, by 1991, you know, about 20. We would have a strategic planning meeting every year, and we'd set goals for the next year and then meet quarterly and check off those goals. But in a nutshell... Um, in 1991, we decided to take our poll statewide okay. New York. There was only the Marist uh, College poll at that time. We decided to take them on head-on. Uh, we started uh, putting together consortiums of radio and television stations all over uh, New York State that bought into our polls. By '94, we were polling for the New York Post. Oh, great. And For Rupert Murdoch, and by '96, Reuters, and then Reuters, um, the the brand name truly became global. Uh, Our record of accuracy was almost unparalleled, and we were driven into the stratosphere. So I sold the company, Zogby International, in in 2010 uh, to a Brazilian conglomerate, Um, and then. Uh, after that, uh, my oldest son reformed the business. Um, he now has the polling company, Zogby okay. Analytics, and I work with my my two other sons, um, who you mentioned, Ben yes. and Jeremy, and it's now John Zogby Strategies that still does some polling, uh, but... Uh, mainly works with companies to, as you pointed out early, steer them, not only companies, agencies, steer them through the dynamic changes, you know, oh, how to right. deal with millennials, how to understand people, where's your market, how to build teams, that sort of thing.
0: Oh, very good. Well, I want I want to hear more about that. But maybe before I do, just let me remind everyone that I'm Ann Greenhall, and I have the pleasure of te- speaking with John Zogby. And we're speaking on leadership and action on Sirius XM Radio, Channel 111. And so, so John, if I could just go back for a second, it, am I right in assuming that the polling that you were doing early on that catapulted you into success was the same kind of polling that you were doing initially that helped predict your own mayoral mayor race? Or was there yeah. a change?
1: Uh, you no, know, uh, it was fundamentally the same. What was Local political races and then local governments um, uh, evolved more and more into into private businesses and customer satisfaction and banks and so on, mainly by telephone. Okay. Now, the telephone in the in the 1980s and half of the 90s was a um, you know still a powerful weapon. We we saw response rates go down. Um, During that period, that was the entry of the answering machines and the star six nines that would call you right back um, and uh, the call waitings and all of those sorts of uh, uh, technologies. But it was mainly telephone, but again, in our strategic planning meetings, we determined by 97, 98 that the telephone was going to become even more troublesome as a hmm. tool. Mm-hmm. And so we started, we are among the pioneers with the Harris organization uh, uh, of um, uh, launching the online polling, okay. which we became quite famous for.
0: Very good. And now strategic plans are mm. is so important to write <laughs> mm-hmm. and sometimes uh, good to follow, but not always good to follow. So again, I'm wondering if uh, you chose polling as your main um, part of your main portfolio, if you will, in your company, or whether it chose you?
1: Um, It was mainly uh, by design. Okay. Um, uh, You know, we had had that, I had had that experience. I liked it. Um, I carved out a niche in those local elections, and then eventually as... Uh, we would succeed with our annual strategic planning. Um, we also realized that as our our brand uh, was becoming, you know, more globalized, that not only did we have to run to catch up with the brand awareness, right. uh, you know, uh, but more importantly, we needed to leverage the political polling into the private sector, uh. into the public sector, into the, well, Frankly, where more where there was more money, and mm-hmm. in the away from the media, where there would be less
0: money. Okay, all right. So, all right, this is helpful. So, when you sold your company, mm-hmm. then was that the moment when you began to refocus the target of your polling?
1: No, good question though, um, and I'm happy to answer it. Oh, um, good. <laughs> what? Uh, In a nutshell, uh, the Brazilian outfit bought companies throughout the Western Hemisphere and, frankly, neglected to understand the local cultures in Canada, Mm -hmm. United States, Mexico, and so on. And, And so they buried all of those companies, including... Uh, my former company. And so it was at that point that I began the negotiation process to get out of my non-compete. And while I was negotiating to get out of the non-compete, my son Jonathan uh, was waiting in the wings ready for a career change and reconstituted the old company, what was left over, into the new company, Zogby Analytics. But the main driving force was polling
2: um
1: so and then um uh we determined that the the best way to keep family together and the best way to keep family business together Mm -hmm. was to start a new company as opposed to you know putting zogby strategy john zogby strategies together with zogby analytics um he so jonathan owns that older company and now we do try not to compete you know by doing the kind of the post-polling uh, work, which more and more needs to, to be done. There are other ways now of gathering data, tremendous ways of gathering data, and that's what we do. We gather uh, analytical data and mm-hmm. soft data as well, you know, via interviews and focus groups and so on, to work with companies.
2: Okay. Um,
1: with the understanding that that was where the business was going to be headed, mm-hmm. frankly, that's what Gallup and the other major companies had determined as well.
0: Okay, very good. Well, thank you so much. So you've really clarified because I was wondering if you were competing with your former firm, and you've you've answered that no, that was not the case, no. and in fact, you were able to sort of resurrect uh, your previous firm through. Uh, with, you, with the help of your oldest son, Jonathan, and that's yes. Zogby Analytics. And the specialty there is political polling, which is alive and well.
1: <laughs> political polling, uh, but he does, uh, they do um, uh, private sector uh, polling, uh, you know, a, a wide variety of, okay. of, of, of polling. But, but political polling is always going to be the most high-profile, Right, and so that's what uh, you know. The the independent polling companies, like Gallup and, mm-hmm. and Harris and Roper and Zogby, but, um, though it, it is that high profile political polling that allows you to leverage your brand name and to keep your name alive, uh, you know, so you you can secure the the uh, the larger private sector contracts.
0: Okay. And so then, in the meantime, the company that you are um, lead with your sons, Benjamin and Jeremy, is mm-hmm. looking, as you said, um, more, you're working with companies
2: mm-hmm. and
0: preparing for what you call the coming wave of dynamic changes. So tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about, you know, what are those dynamic changes that you're particularly interested in exploring?
1: Oh. And it's not just the coming wave, it's, you know, the existing wave of <laughs> of, of, of dynamic changes. Well you know the 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 first is a uh, broad sweep here millennials okay. and gen z um in in fact i have a couple of books out about millennials and how different they are uh as voters uh as as workers um mm-hmm. as consumers uh uh i call them uh, our first globals yeah our first global citizens um and they are attuned with their fellow millennials and global citizens all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so I still find after all these years, over a decade now, of doing a lot of public speaking on millennials, that folks still are coming to grips trying to understand
2: mm-hmm.
1: who millennials are and, and how, how to make relationships with, with them work. Stay tuned. Gen Z is even uh, more different uh, than, than millennials and different uh, from
2: millennials
1: mm-hmm. uh, as well. So let's just call that uh, demographics.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the, the second major wave is the ability, you know, the leveling the playing field, the ability to do business um, w- without being physically located in other places, you know, being mm-hmm. able to, to do it uh, uh, electronically, technologically, to be able to, you know, mom-and-pop firms to compete with major firms. Hey, we just saw that in the news today. A mm-hmm. two-member energy company in Montana has a $300 million contract um, to uh, rebuild the power lines in Puerto Rico. Mm. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: That's a whole other story in and of itself, but, you know, that just would not have happened um, you know, 10 uh, or, or 15 years ago. The third thing is fundraising.
2: Hmm. You know,
1: um, for those out there who understand uh, fundraising campaigns and development and so on, used to be the pyramid, right? you yeah. you get major donors at the top and the general, um, you know, donors, smaller donors on, on the bottom. Now, um, you know, in, in, instead of... Um, uh, you know, five people giving a million dollars each. You look for a million people to give you five dollars each, right? And and uh, and so that in itself requires mm-hmm. understanding and uh, you know, targeting of people is so different, and that kind of segues into tribal analytics. The okay. project that I've been working on now since two thousand nine that moves beyond simply trying to grasp people via um, uh, demographics mm-hmm. and analytics and more into understanding people by their tribe that's, mm-hmm. that's built on attributes, values, and aspirations.
0: Oh, very good. Well, I do want to get to that, but I would like to give um, a shout-out for your previous book, and the title is First Globals, Understanding, Managing, and Unleashing Our Millennial Generation. We have had conversation on leadership in action about uh, generations in relationship to the workplace and leadership. Uh-huh. And, uh, Mike, you seem, if he were here, would remember an interview we had with a woman named Jennifer Deal, who's a researcher at the Center for Creative Leadership and uh, she has a wonderful expression uh, <clears throat> that describes differences in millennials, which I'll, I'll share with you. And as I, as I shared with Mike, the only reason I can remember it is that there is some alliteration. So she says millennials are distinct uh, by way of temperance tattoos and technology. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, uh, she would say that they are much more comfortable with tattoos than previous generations. Uh They're much more uh, fluid, of course, with technology. And uh, from the perspective of other generations that they could use a little more grit. So I'm wondering Uh how your research uh, would complement Jennifer Deal's conclusions.
1: She's absolutely right. Oh, good. (laughs) They they are not um, the Uh, the first generation to live with technology um, but they are the first generation to be dominated by a world of ever-changing technology and so it's it's a necessary fluidity uh, that that they have now many of us who are older you know, are facile with technology, but these kids, and at my age, I can say that <laughs>
2: um,
1: the, these kids have to master it, they have to teach it, they have to mentor us through it, and then realize that in two or three weeks, uh, what they just purchased uh, online is already obsolete and, and purchase, learn, teach, and mentor uh, you know a whole new set of, of technologies. The grit part, um, I, I have a slight disagreement mm-hmm. because, you know, while I do think that uh, we boomers pampered mm-hmm. our kids, you know, they are the first generation to require helmets when they get on their <laughs> tricycle.
2: <laughs> yes. Um,
1: that's a little bit much. On the other hand, I think the Great Recession was a leveler mm. for for millennials. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I saw... Uh, in polling and in my own experience, is a sea change uh, from uh, tell me how, how I could become COO uh, in two years, those are the kids out of college, mm-hmm. to honestly I'll do anything. Uh, I think they have adjusted to the fact, many of them, that they're entering a gig economy, mm-hmm. that typically Alan Blinder at Princeton yeah. says uh, – You know, today's 20-something will have had four gigs by the age of 30, 10 by the age of 40. And that's probably even the numbers of gigs are expanding. So these are kids that have to be very, very flexible. And I think that flexibility has kind of instilled much more grit into into them than we previously thought.
0: Well, John, we're going to take uh, just a short break here. And when we come back, I do want to talk about your new book, we are many. We are one. Neo tribes and tribal analytics in the 21st century America. I'm Ann Greenhall. Don't go away. We'll be right back. This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Ann Greenhall, and I have the great pleasure of speaking this hour with John Zugby, founder and senior partner of John Zugby Strategies. John, before the break, we were just teeing up your most recent book, and that is We Are Many, We Are One, Neo-Tribes and Tribal Analytics in 21st Century America. So, John, tell tell me a little bit about what got you to write this book.
1: I've spent an adult lifetime... um, Learning demographics and mm. understanding uh, the demographic groupings, and also coming to an understanding that uh, we're much more complicated than age, race, region, gender, and religion, and uh, and, and so on. That we, we need a much more textured look at who we are um, as as people. Uh, and in addition to that, you know, just as we. Enter that world, uh, I started this in January this process, January two thousand and nine, mm-hmm. entering this world of big data, yeah, kind of coming to grips with the fact that I can collect one hundred and fifty data points on an individual and have absolutely no idea who that person really is and motive and mm-hmm. what motivates them and so I wanted to have some better understanding of people on the basis of their personal attributes um, their values, and their aspirations. And then what, in this new technological era, what binds people together? I mean, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the old maxim, uh, if, uh, if we could only see ourselves as others see us, I, I kind of flipped inside out, if, if others can see us the way we see ourselves. Um, and so what I learned is that we actually build our own tribes and so I began the process of, of trying to understand what those tribes were in this new era, you know, uh, by the initial research in, in early 2009.
0: Hmm. So when you talk about personal attributes, values, mm-hmm. and aspirations, let's talk about personal attributes first. Uh, mm-hmm. Say more about what you have in mind.
1: Well, first of all, we asked people, what, what drives them? What motivates them? And I'll, I'll tell you the questions that we asked oh, good. Uh, in, in a second. But, you know, ultimately, th- by those attributes, there are people that are driven by their faith, hmm. uh, by faith in a God or faith in a, a higher being of some sort. There are others that are driven by their need to have fun or hmm. to explore and find new challenges. There are one in five of us, and this was staggering for me to learn, who um, are driven by um, uh, uh, a tragedy, a Mm -hmm. horrible personal tragedy uh, that has dominated their lives and are merely, as they say, hanging on and and surviving. There uh, are others who are are creators that need to be creative and are driven by the need to write the great American novel or star in a movie Mm -hmm. or, or something. And so there are, uh, Eleven major neo tribes we have discovered, and then there are emerging tribes. So the process of what I call tribal analytics is uh, is very much a dynamic process where we're constantly finding uh, the, these tribes and packaging people who respond to our surveys and very soon our social media entreaties. Um, you know, to uh, in, into into a tribe, something that is appealing to to marketers, to human resources directors, to attorneys seeking to um, uh, you know to, to find the optimum optimum jury, and and so on.
0: And John, are these tribes um, uh, distinguished by a particular personal attribute? So, in other words one tribe might have as its hallmark that the members are driven by their faith.
1: Yes. Yep. So let's quickly go through some of them. That'd
0: be great. Oh, good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I should tell you that these names uh, arose from the bottom up. So that mm-hmm. if there's anybody out there listening who is saying, well, how did you come up with that stupid name? Um, Blame it on the people. Okay. Um, so,
0: <laughs> very good.
1: There's the God Squad. Uh, very quickly, that's the group that's dominated by their faith, their belief in God. There are the Happy Hedonists who seek fun um, and pleasure. Um, they're, uh, these are multifaceted and multi demographic right. as well. Right. Um, there are the adventurers who. Like, love to explore and travel and are mobile and seek new challenges. The self-perfectionists are those who um, uh, are constantly driven to improve themselves mm-hmm. and are very ambitious. The persistence are those that I mentioned who are, uh, uh, are survivors of, okay. uh, of a major tragedy. There are the g- go with the flow. These are the moderate, the zen, those who seek balance. The thing I love about them, this is after <laughs> now 10,000 uh, uh, interviews and, mm. and surveys and, and still going on, is that the go with the flow who seek balance are 50% men and huh. 50% women. Isn't that beautiful how it that is. turned out? Wow. <laughs> yes. Um, there are the, uh, the land of the free, that's the largest tribe. The, these are traditional values, um, mm. very conservative. They tend a little older, but they include considerable number of people under 40. Mm-hmm. Um, they include libertarians, but I think their motto that would best be summed by the American Revolution, don't tread on me.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: And then there are more. There are the outsiders um, who, you know, we've asked people about bonding moments and how do you bond, bond with your tribe most effectively and these are uh, all of those bonding moments sco- score the lowest among the outsiders they are happiest when they're alone especially when they're in a room filled with others
0: okay and so the personal attributes for example the god squad um driven by faith mm-hmm. are attributes and values the same or different
1: Attributes are personal characteristics. Values are what I believe in and hold sacrosanct. And then I should say that an aspect of these also are aspirations yes. on, on what they want to be.
0: Okay. So just to tease that out, um, if we take the, just because you began with it, the God Squad, so a personal attribute would be that they are believers, people of faith, Mm-hmm. And the second, the value would be that they hold, uh, let's say, religion dear. Yes. And, and the
1: third, okay, would be uh, a third would be s- simplicity. They're not driven by materialism. Uh, when we ask them, "In your wildest fantasy, what car are you driving, and which car are you driving?", they're the number one group that says, "My present car."
0: Okay, that's great. That's great. And then how about aspiration? What would the aspiration be?
1: The aspiration would be to achieve the American dream, but their American dream is what I call a, a more secular spiritualism, the ability to be fulfilled inside and and not by material pleasures.
0: Okay. So to be a member of the God Squad, do you necessarily have to be a religious person?
1: No. No, and that that not only came out of the surveys, it came out of the focus groups we did for validation. One woman said, "Oh, I was surprised to to be a member of the God Squad. I have a strong faith, strong faith even in a higher being, but not necessarily God. How could I be a member of the God Squad?" Well, the way she answered the the qualifying questions was that how it that's how it emerged, um, but. Uh, let's say her God is that, that, that faith and that higher being.
0: Okay. So tell us a little bit about your methodology. You mentioned, I, th- I think I heard, was it 10,000 interviews?
1: Well, over the years, yeah. The way we started this, though, was rather than sitting around the table hypothesizing about questions that we wanted to ask mm-hmm. um, and have people check off, we asked 21 open-ended questions to 4,000 people. Okay. Um, and those four thousand people are not necessarily in that pool of ten thousand. These were the initial right. um, online interviews that were done. And what is the motto that drives your life? Open-ended, completely.
2: Mm.
1: What are the two most important factors you used in choosing who to hang out with or who who is a member of your tribe? Um, what are the two most defining moments? in your life this is where we learned about mm. those, those tragedies
2: mm-hmm.
1: what brands really speak to you and tell your story um so it was those kinds of questions and my sons and employees and i um just hmm. did this the hard way we captured all this evidence and we took down notes and we created piles of paper Right. Uh, We asked people among those questions, what would you call your tribe? And after we learned the various names and characteristics, we started creating piles and consolidating, because you couldn't have 4,000 tribes. Um, And so from there and from the analysis of that first round, and incidentally, Ogilvy and Mather, Uh their Chicago Mm -hmm. folks, uh, played a, a major role in working alongside of, of us in uh, during this process. Um, now
0: from, that's an uh, advertising agency, right? Ogilvy, oh,
1: advertising, right. yeah, and thought leadership uh, okay. uh, agency. You know, from uh, one of the largest in the world, right? Uh, but from there, then we created sets of questions that we then used um, to to quantify the tribes um, and what happened was that there were 11 neo tribes um that were were created and continuously validated over the span
2: mm-hmm. of
1: almost a decade and then there were some that were emerging tribes that would mm-hmm. grow each time we surveyed but not quite enough to make the cut and mm-hmm. the cut was a a quantification you know a large enough group so that we could do some statistically significant analysis of them.
0: And were the second set of questions, were they also open-ended?
1: No. No, that's where uh, we moved to the quantification process. Um, of uh, w- Some of the surveys were 150 questions. Others were 80 questions. There are basically 28 questions that um, we use to define your tribe. And in fact, there's a web app. That people that folks can take oh, uh, to find out their own tribe and that is zogby tribal analytics.com zogbytribalanalytics.com you click on that <laughs> and you can take the survey find your tribe and then submit it and it will tell you what your tribe is like?
0: Oh boy, I can't wait to take that. <laughs> but we're going to take. Uh, just let me do a, just a quick uh, reminder here for all our listeners, listeners, and that is that you're listening to Leadership in Action. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I have the great pleasure of speaking with John Zogby, founder and senior partner of John Zogby Strategies. And I want to invite you, there's still time, you can join in, and if you have a question about what we're talking about, Tribal Analytics, our phone number is one wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. 942 7866 all right, so now important question. Well, I, let me just preface this important question by saying that I'm really interested in the categories and how yeah. you came up with those categories. And uh, so that work from the bottom up to create these oh. tribes I find very appealing, almost almost a little bit like ethnography. Yeah. You know that you you are creating sort of the archetypal narratives. For each mm-hmm. of these groups of people, but I know that I have members of the audience w- who would be very interested in knowing how you put this into practice. In other words, what is the mm. practical business application of your work?
1: Sure. So let's get into some case studies. So, oh, great. in the world of banking, for example, um, we did a, a beta test uh, with um, uh, with banking customers, and uh, first and foremost wanted to find out their tribes, and so those are the 28 questions. But from there, we wanted to know who are the savers and who are the non-savers. Uh, how do they define the American dream, which is very important, um, and, uh, and and other things. Um, I thought what was most interesting about it was that uh, what I call in the book this the major chapter, uh, and emerged also in this one of these beta tests, um, tribal border crossings. Hmm. So let's say there's a God Squad and there are happy hedonists, and immediately what we conjure up is, oh boy, don't put these two in the same room with each other until we discover that 18% of happy hedonists say that their second tribe is the God Squad.
2: Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: That's aspirational. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I guess maybe you might conjure up oh, these are some young people that are saying, well, let me hedge a little bit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, uh,
1: But the bottom line is here that uh, another thing that I learned uh, is that what keeps you up at night? A happy hedonist will say uh, uh, global warming, and God Squad will say among their top three, man's stewardship of God's earth. Okay. Now, huh? That tells me uh, I can reach these people on common ground. So that's what we discovered with the various aspects parsing the American Dream, that there were varying tribes, almost what you would call divergent tribes, that uh, clustered around certain definitions of the American Dream. Mm -hmm. So let's suppose that I want to launch boat loans for people who want to buy a boat. Uh, (laughs) uh, There are God Squad people who will say, um, a boat gives me some inner peace. And a happy hedonist will say, this is fun. And an adventurist will say, ah, here's a new experience, one that I've never had, that I can enjoy. A land of the free person will say, ah, I'm liberated.
2: Right.
0: All right. But now, as a company, would you want to target all of those tribes, or would you need to be more uh, specific and focused?
1: they need to be more specific and focused. Right. But first of all, we'd have to find out who their customers are. And what we have found in every instance where we've both tested this and then worked with actual clients is that every entity we've worked with so far has... Um, a distribution that includes all of these tribes. But now, who are the optimum customers? Uh, how do I save money with my advertising yeah. dollars, most notably online, but as well, say, expensive television and radio, by finding common messages um, and, and targeting in such a way that I can reach two or three tribes uh, at the same time with the same, with the same message?
0: Uh, very good. We have a uh, faculty member here, Pete Fader, who talks about customer centricity and that mm-hmm. not, not all customers are of equal value <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. and that you really need to target. And I'm hearing that a little bit in, in what you're saying. So uh, who are your customers? What, what tribe maybe would be most interested in right. what you have to offer?
1: Right. And what, what are other tribes that have an affinity to that tribe? Um, that can be can also be reached either primarily or secondarily, you know, as an offshoot.
0: Mm. So, so John, are you? Would you be able to give us an example of an interesting uh, client assignment that you've had that's drawn on your on your work?
1: Um, a murder trial.
0: Oh, all right.
1: How's that? Yeah, that's
0: great. Okay. Let's hear.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, I'm being careful here yes. because because um, I'm being careful
0: right, no, of um, course,
1: but in terms of jury selection, it was very useful for us to have an understanding of of what tribes were more flexible okay. and which tribes uh, were uh, you know harder um, mm-hmm. and who to keep and who to stay away from who this was a trial that mm-hmm. relied an awful lot on some level of uh, technological facility. I'm not going to say expertise, right. but okay. as we learned, there were some tribes that were more inclined to be online, to use social media,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so on. Those were the kinds of people we wanted on the jury. And um, uh, being careful, yeah. because the, the uh, closing arguments come in uh, early next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can tell you that our side is very happy with what they've seen so far.
0: Very good, and I and I appreciate that comment or that example because I think it also underscores your earlier point: is that you're talking about uh, attributes and values and aspirations mm-hmm. as opposed to demographics.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so
0: it's a different way of thinking about who you might like on the jury.
1: Exactly. Uh, You know, some will fall through the cracks, we're human beings, but there are so many different varieties of 18 to Mm 29-year-olds. I love the term seniors. Um, Well, these days, seniors are anyone who's 55 years of age to 120. Yeah. Uh, That's multi-generational. So frankly, what do they share in common? And what don't they share in common? So every one of these tribes, as I mentioned before, is Mm multi-demographic.
0: So, yeah, and just if I may push that point a little bit. uh, So when you look at a tribe, how much demographic similarity is there from tribe to tribe? Or does it vary from tribe? It vary in each tribe.
1: It varies mm-hmm. really in in each tribe. Um, again, I love the go with the flow, the moderates that are fifty fifty. That just seemed too perfect. Um, the outsiders that surprised me. When I think of an outsider, I tend to think of younger male um, and the kinds mm-hmm. of guys in college who used to play cards all the time um, <laughs> and and get a point to cume. Uh, uh, uh but outsiders tend more to be women
0: hm okay so that's interesting so the, are there yeah, other other surprising demographics?
1: Oh God, there's so many <laughs> um the one true path that's a group that um, that I haven't mentioned before right um are uh uh- among their attributes is, is a religious conservatism, mm-hmm. and yet they are much more attuned to issues like poverty and uh, uh, the the poverty in their community, human rights overseas, uh, the, um, uh, the, the environment, uh, than you would normally expect of, of conservatives, for that matter religious conservatives. And so that was uh, kind of a surprise.
0: Oh, very interesting. And now just a little playful question, and you don't have to answer, but I'm wondering if you found yourself reflected in one of the tribes.
1: I did. Uh, um, are you
0: willing to share?
1: <laughs> sure. Why not? Because <laughs> I can always take it tomorrow again, too, right? Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, I I, um, I, I find myself to be a persistent, number uh-huh. one, um, and uh, and followed by a creator as an entrepreneur.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, so in that group uh, of survivors, am I remembering right?
2: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Very good. Well, I so appreciate that. Well, now we have just a minute or so left, but I'm wondering if there's any um, words to the wise that you might share with our, with our audiences. They are thinking about polling or tribes and next steps in the future, looking forward.
1: Next step for us is we're in the process of developing uh, a vast social media mechanism so that we can find your tribe by just simply having you click on appealing banner ads. Uh, and um, uh, we will be able uh, within a year's time of not only having tens of millions of uh, of context in our in our database, but more importantly, our retail customers, for example, will be able to find out the optimum places to reach their tribes and then move to the next phase, which is to place banner advertising uh, with a click and a credit card
0: oh boy, very, very good. I can hear the strategic plan <laughs> am there I right
1: the strategic plan, and thank God for <laughs> Benjamin and Jeremy because. Those are the millennials on the team uh, who are much more expert and and facile with this kind of stuff than I am.
0: Oh, very good. Well, John, I really do want to thank you for joining us tonight. And I would like to ask and feel free to share how listeners can find out more about your firm Mm -hmm. and also about your your books, your work.
1: So number one is www.johnzogbystrategies.com. Number 2 is ZogbyTribalAnalytics.com so that you can find your tribe and number 3 you go to Amazon John Zogby and my book is right there.
0: Very and good. I'll be watching. <laughs> oh great. Well John, <laughs> it's been a real pleasure to speak with you tonight. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Anne. A pleasure talking to you, too. Thank
0: you. All right, well, thank you all for listening and joining tonight. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and be sure to follow our show on Twitter at bizradio111. Thank you to my guest Brett Stolberg, and, of course, John Zugby. Thank you to Patty Hall, our producer, and Matt Datz. Thank you to our engineer, Tatiana Zamis. I'm Ann Greenhall, listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.